All right, this is a great passage for Lent. You guys know that Lent started on Wednesday, right? Uh, we're sort of a low church, church in a lot of ways. If you pay attention to these placards from time to time, you'll see different aspects of the calendar of the church as with the front of our order of worship. The first Sunday in Lent is what this is. This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. And if you had attended a Catholic church or a high Episcopal church, a high liturgical church, you may have gone in and gotten ashes on your forehead. And uh, almost every priest that I talked to this week said that when they asked if anybody knew why they were there, they didn't have one person that responded to them and say, I know why I'm here and I know what the ashes mean. And I want to tell you, this is a great sermon for us to understand what the ashes mean. From ashes to ashes, from dust to dust, the life of human beings, right? We go, because of our sin, from ashes to ashes, from dust to dust. And this idea of marking the beginning of Lent is the season in which we are supposed to consider the gravity of our sin. That's the orchestration of it. And this is a good example of a text that helps us do that. And I want to ask you a question that might bring you into this text. All right. And this is my simple question for you. How do you respond to the scandals that you hear about in church? And maybe you are so far from being in church. Maybe the last thing you want is to be in church. And you find yourself here today because someone invited you and, and you're not sure whether you're ready to thank them or ready to hit them yet. Uh, you've already seen a lot that you wonder about. But how do you respond to scandals in the church? Um, how do you respond to the sexual abuse that happens in churches, the extortion of money, the adultery that happens, the deception, and the list goes on and on, right? And you go, man, the church is really flawed. And I have a question for you. How do you handle it? Maybe you simply shrug it off and say, hey, look, you got to take the good with the bad. Human beings make up the church and human beings are broken creatures, right? Well, what I want you to see today is that I want you to witness God's commitment to the heart-level purity of His church. And I think that it should cause each of us to consider our own heart's inclination towards deception, towards pretense, and even towards self-protection. Now you can see why it's a good Lenten service, right? I'm asking you to consider something. But unlike the story of Lent that happens during the week, you know that Sundays are a celebration day, right? For those of you all who keep Lent, and I don't even know who you are, and in fact, when you're fasting, the Scriptures say you shouldn't let anybody know that you're fasting, right? You should do it with a smile on your face. No one knows. It's supposed to be in your heart. But if you are fasting, do you know that Sunday is a day of celebration where you break fast? Do you know that? So I won't leave you in your sin. I'm going to give you hope. But I'm going to ask you to think about these things. What we see in this section of Acts is the whole picture of the church. Right? And I want you to see what it is. 
It's absolutely glorious. Look at it with me. The whole picture of the church. It's right there on page 912. The very beginning of it says they have everything in common. You've said, Bradley, wait a minute. Haven't we read this? I know it sounds a lot like the end of chapter 2 where it also says that they had everything in common. In fact, these are parallel to each other, right? You can read at the end of Acts 2, 42 through 47, something very similar to these accounts. But there's something that Luke is trying to point out to us that he did not point out in Acts 2, 42 through 47. And I want you to see the whole picture of what's going on in the church. Verses 32 through 35. What is people like? What are human beings like when they're filled with the Holy Spirit? You go, Bradley, where do you get that idea? Look right up in verse 31, the verse that comes right before it. And it says this, and when they had prayed, when the disciples were all together, and that's not just the 12, the apostles are the 12, but the disciples are all who followed Jesus. When they had all come together and they prayed, it says, for the place in which they had gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The very thing that they asked for, God, give us the courage in the face of persecution to speak with boldness. We are in the middle of these chapters that are demonstrating that as soon as the kingdom of God began to move out in power, there was persecution. And that's what Luke is showing us today, this idea of the spiritual persecution. This whole picture is amazing. But the first few verses are incredible. What people are like when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Read them again with me, if you will. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said any of these things, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or homes sold them. And brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This is an amazing picture. One commentator who's hundreds of years old at this place says, you'd have to have an iron heart for this to not affect you in a way that makes you long and say, wouldn't it be amazing if a community like that actually existed? It's described here as the unity of heart and soul. These people were of one heart and of one soul. We're told just a few verses earlier that this is 5,000 people at this point. Of one heart and one soul. The unity itself is amazing. And for any of you who have ever dealt with a child over the age of two, the other amazing thing that takes the Holy Spirit to believe it's possible is sharing, right? <laughs> it's sharing. You go, wouldn't it be amazing if the Holy Spirit came? What would our lives be like Right here it says that they shared their things. It says as they experienced this oneness of heart, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his alone. The way in which they conceived of everything that they had was in an attitude and a posture of sharing and of giving. It says that from this the apostles gave powerful witness to the resurrection of Jesus and that there was great grace upon them all, and that among them there was no need. 
Very quickly, 30 seconds, what's been going on? Jesus has been raised from the dead and over the course of 40 days made Himself known to over 500 people, the Apostle Paul tells us. And that in that time, He then went to heaven and these disciples started proclaiming that Jesus had been raised from the dead and people who had traveled to Jerusalem began to put their faith and trust in Him and they stayed in Jerusalem. They had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost to celebrate this festival of weeks, to celebrate the harvest and the giving of what God had given His people. And the Holy Spirit was poured out and people began to put their faith and trust in Jesus. And instead of going home, they stayed. And hundreds and soon thousands, as many as 5,000 people began to gather. And there was need. How are we going to feed each other? How are we going to make this work? What is this community going to be like? And you see this description. This description of unity of heart and soul that leads to this point of these outward signs of unity, of sharing, of generosity, of not considering their own things their stuff. These are amazing verses. And we all ought to hear them and go, wouldn't it be great if that's what marked the church today? Wouldn't that be incredible? The testimony to a watching world of people who readily shared, sacrificially shared what they had so that there was no need among them. That's amazing. And that's the picture that's going on here. It wasn't that no one had their own property, right? If you read it closely, you realize, hey, look, they kept meeting in people's homes. So there's some people that didn't sell their homes. But there were some people that sold even their property to support what was going on. And the very next verse is where you see Barnabas doing that very thing. It says there in verse 35. Am I I, I right in that? No, verse 36. Sorry, I left my glasses somewhere. Um, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. They couldn't remember Barnabas' name. I mean, how in the world can you remember all 5,000 names, right? And they go, that guy, that that one who encourages, we're going to name him Barnabas, son of encouragement. That's his name. His name was Joseph, but they called him Barnabas because everything about him was encouragement. The amazing thing is the root of his name is the same root for the name of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who would encourage, the one who would bring comfort. And that's what Barnabas was like, filled with the Holy Spirit. He he longed to demonstrate comfort to people in the church. And so he sold some of his land and he brought it to them. And he said, this was land, I sell it and I give it to you. It's interesting that Luke says he was a Levite, isn't it? What do you remember about the Levites from the Old Testament? You remember anything about them? What did they not get in the promised land? Do you remember anything? They didn't get any land, right? You remember that? They didn't get any land because God said, the Levites are the priests before me, and I am their inheritance. Isn't it interesting that Luke points out that Barnabas was a Levite who was willing to sell his land and say, I don't need this. You take it. You use it. And he laid it sacrificially at the apostles' feet. This is an amazing story of generosity. 
all the money that was given to them. But what we understand is not that the church was perfect during this time. The church experienced some incredible beauty. But right next to Barnabas, we understand that God's commitment to the purity of his church is at the heart level. And as we witness this, we ought to be willing to respond about our own hearts and say, how am I like this? Because the very next thing that we see is at the heart level what was also going on in the church. And this is verses 1 through 11. It's always good to look at Scripture, and when the verse starts out with a but, you know it's connected to what came before, right? So chapter 5, verse 1 says, But a man named Ananias and his wife sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back some for himself. He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we see that, that Ananias looks a lot like Barnabas, right? In fact, from everything on the outside, if you were standing around, you would have not only celebrated when Barnabas brought his stuff, but then when Ananias brought his stuff, you were quick to almost go like, yeah, unbelievable, more generosity, more encouragement. But Luke tells us something that's different about Ananias and Sapphira. He says that before they sold the property, they contrived in their hearts to keep back some for themselves. And there it says that with his wife's knowledge, he then took part of what he had sold and went and gave it to Peter. And then the story goes on, and as it goes, you begin to understand what happened. Read it with me. But, in verse 3, Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now listen to what he says. While it remained unsold, the land, did it not remain your own? This land was yours, Ananias. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You had the right to do anything that you wanted to with this, with this money. The issue is not that you only gave 50%. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter is pointing out that when Ananias came forward, he came forward under the false pretense that he was giving everything that he had sold the land for. Some commentators think that he might have made a deal or might have made a commitment, a vow, and then that he went and sold the land and went back on his vow. Others at least acknowledge that in his deception, he was lying to the Holy Spirit about his sacrifice and this gift. And on top of that deception, we see the idea of pretense, right? Wanting to look a specific way. And even under that, holding back some for himself, the idea of self-protection. And here, the amazing thing is that Peter tells him that this is what he's done and calls him out in verse 3. Now think about it. Maybe Ananias had made a vow in front of Peter, and so Peter knew, and maybe somebody had come to him and said, you know, I, I heard Ananias and Sapphira talking, and they have decided they're only going to give you a portion of what they sold their land for. Maybe Peter learned of it that way. 
It's likely that Peter also, filled with the Holy Spirit in this miraculous way, was able to address Ananias's heart in the midst of this. But what we see is that Peter confronts him in verses 3 through 5. In verses 6, it tells us that immediately when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last breath. That's in verse 5. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. It says that when they saw what happened with Ananias, great fear came upon all of them. What is going on here? And then in the next few verses in 7 through 9, the story unfolds with the last piece. It says, after an interval of about three hours, his wife Sapphira came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you and you and Ananias, you can read that, it says plural there, whether you all sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And there the story is full, known to us, that Ananias and Sapphira created a plan to deceive the apostles at what they were giving. And Peter points out to them, you're not deceiving us, you're deceiving the Holy Spirit, and you can't do that. You can't deceive him. And not only that, they did it in the face of everyone else as pretense about who they were and what they were sacrificing. And underneath even that is the idea of self-protection, to hold back just a little bit for themselves. This is the story that unfolds before us. And still we scratch our head and go, okay, so they held back money. They, they deceived or sought to deceive the Holy Spirit what is the gravity of this? And this is where Luke really shines. This is where he really shines. Luke writes, and he's a Greek, he's not a Hebrew. Luke is a Greek. And he writes with a similar word that he had read in the Old Testament. In a place that you guys have studied, that we as a church have studied, Joshua 7. Do you remember that guy when they went and they defeated Jericho and God said, you can't take any of their stuff? Do you remember that? And Achan goes and he steals this robe that he says, man, that's a fine robe. I want that robe. And he steals silver and he steals gold and he goes and he kept it for himself. That's the word that Luke uses when he describes what Ananias did. He held back or he kept it for himself. He uses that very specific word. And here's the other interesting thing. It doesn't exist anywhere else besides here and there in Joshua. Luke is pointing out that what Ananias did is he took that which was supposed to have been or was vowed to have been given to God to set apart for God and for God alone. 
just like it says in Joshua 7. Not only that, but Luke mentions here for the first time that there was great fear in verse 11 that had come upon the church. The people assembled together haven't been called the church before. Here they're called the church or the assembly, the same word that God uses for his people that he brings out to Mount Sinai. This is my church. This is my assembly, is what he says. And he says of those people in Deuteronomy, among you there should be no poor. He says that in Deuteronomy 15. And in another place, in Deuteronomy 10, he actually says this. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love and to serve the Lord your God with your whole heart and with your whole soul. You see those words in there, don't you? The fear of the Lord with one heart and with one soul. And Luke is saying, in the same way that God called his people out and who said to him, everything that you come across is mine. It's not yours. In the same way that Achan was guilty in Joshua 7 of taking that which was set apart to the Lord, here we see in this passage Ananias and Sapphira guilty of the same thing. How do you work that? Because to put your trust in Jesus is to say, I've been crucified and I'm died. I'm dead. And everything that I have is dead and it's God's. It belongs to him. But Ananias and Sapphira said, nah, not all of it. We're taking back some for ourselves. But here we see the magnitude of the deception. Not only the lying to the Holy Spirit, but taking back that which was set apart to God, but giving the pretense that their sacrifice was everything and ultimately demonstrating in their self-protection that they never trusted God in the first place. Jesus is unwilling to overlook the spots of skin cancer in his church. He's unwilling to do it. When the church is first called the church in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus asks Peter, who do people say that I am? And he says, some say that you're Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, or another prophet. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to name you Peter the rock. And on this rock of that truth, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm going to build my church. And Jesus says, the gates of hell are not going to overpower my church. And what we see in this is that the Holy Spirit was there, but we also see that in Ananias' life, the Satan was there, filling his heart. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus is committed, committed to the heart-level purity of his church, even to death. And therefore, we should consider where our hearts are likewise inclined towards deception, towards pretense, and towards self-protection. You see, the church 
is Jesus' assembly of the new covenant. And for anyone who is a member of the church, you have said, I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And everything I have is yours. It's yours. Now look, I don't know what I would do if you all started tithing, if everybody in this room just tithed 10%. Just by the number of families that we have and by the, the number of people that we are and the average amount of income in Newton and Wellesley, we would have double what we need for our budget. It would be amazing. And then if you pushed everything in the pot, you've watched the, 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 the gamblers playing poker on ESPN late at night, right, when you can't sleep. And you see them and they just go, I'm putting it all in, I'm shoving it in. I'm putting everything I have here. I'm telling you, I wouldn't have a clue what to do. And I don't know if the right thing, and this certainly isn't what this is saying, is that you should come and empty your bank account in the next offering plate that goes through. But what it is certainly saying is that for those of you who are Christians, we are supposed to be able to say we are all in. And everything that we have belongs to you. No deception. No deception. For those of you who are seeking, you don't profess faith at all. I want you to know that God is more committed to the heart purity of his church than any human being can be with indignation towards seeing a broken church. And look, I get it. Maybe you have said, look, I want nothing to do with the church because it has wounded so many people. What I want you to see in this is that God is committed to purifying his church. And I want you to think about this. If he's willing to do this with his church, how much more committed is he going to be with those who disregard him and say, nope, I'm not giving you any of my life. My life is mine not yours. I want you to think about Jericho. Remember those guys, they marched around Jericho? You remember how many times? Seven times. You know what that was for? For those in Jericho, like Rahab, who said, oh my goodness, this is really true, and defected from Jericho and said, I'm aligning myself with the Israelites. That invitation is yours today. God is a long-suffering God. He is patient, but he is committed to purity. He's so committed to the purity of the church that he will kill for it. So what do you do if you're a believer? Listen, we should consider here where our hearts are likewise inclined, like Ananias and Sapphira, to be deceptive, to be filled with pretense and self-protection. We should remember that we cannot get away with lying to the Holy Spirit. Where or when do you sense your desire to deceive the amount of which you sacrifice for being a Christian? When do you sense that desire to deceive? How about the desire to be perceived, to create a pretense 
about who you are? Where do you tend towards self-protection versus pushing it all in? Jonathan Edwards was a minister in New England, and he said one time that there was a kingdom, and in the kingdom there was a poor farmer, and the poor farmer loved to farm and grew a carrot like no other carrot that had been grown before. And he dug this carrot up, the biggest carrot, the most magnificent carrot, the best orange carroty carrot that you can imagine. And he washed it off and he said, this carrot is incredible. And I want to give this carrot to the king. And so he ran to the palace and beat on the door and they answered the door. And he said, I have a gift for the king. And he walks in before the king and he presents his carrot. And he says, king, this carrot is yours. It is the most magnificent thing I've ever grown and I give it to you. And the king was overwhelmed at the gift of the poor farmer and said, thank you for your carrot. And in return, I want to give you all of this extra land to farm that as well. You're an excellent farmer. Go and farm. And one of the officials of the court was there and thought to himself, hmm, this is how the king works. I got an idea. And the next day he shows up at work in the palace and he's carrying behind him with the reins the largest horse that anybody had ever seen, the most powerful horse, this specimen of horse that was stronger than any horse that had ever come before. And he said, oh, king, I come to you today and because of your majesty, I give you this horse. And the king says, thanks, and takes the horse. And that's the end of the conversation. And the man is dejected and turns around and walks back to his post. And the king sees his dejection and he says, understand something. The farmer who came in yesterday gave me the carrot. But you gave yourself the horse. And when I heard a friend talk about that this week, I thought, what a great picture of the complexity of my heart before God. This idea that things laid at the apostles' feet were sacrifices and the desire to deceive myself and say, look, I've given everything. And the question goes, have you? Without pretense, I've given it so that no one would even recognize the gift, that there would be no comparison, okay? That there's nothing held back for self-protection. Hmm. And all week, I've considered my heart. The heart that Scripture says our hearts are deceptive beyond all things who can know them. And I've been amazed that God is so committed to the purity of His church that He would kill for it. And you see, this is where you understand the gospel. Because Jesus died and was killed for us, we have been washed in his blood as we just sang, presented before God as pure. And the call for you and me is to say, I want to repent. I want God to continue to make me who he has called me to be. 
Paul would later on write that our sacrifices are actually living sacrifices that we give our entire lives, is what he would tell the Romans. And so we come to that passage that David writes, and he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You guys, the reality is not that we should avoid being like Ananias and Sapphira, but the reality is is that this battle that goes on in the world is different than what goes on in the heart of a Christian because sin has been defeated and we've been set free. But our hearts still tend toward deception and pretense and self-protection. And our call is to repent. What would you, non-Christian, think if you saw Christians actually agreeing and doing just that? That is the testimony that these first Christians lived out and that a watching world ran toward. This is the Lenten season. Let's consider ourselves, but not without doing so in the light of this table, where it pleased God to crush his own son for us, that we might be purified by his blood. Amen? Let's pray.